true story. A family moved into a neighborhood and children came over to meet the new little girl on the block. And they asked her what religion she was. Now she'd been going to a Unitarian Universalist church, but her mother wasn't sure whether she would remember our rather complicated name, so she was curious to hear her daughter's reply. After much hesitation and repeated questioning, the little girl finally answered, well, I'm not sure, but I think we're League of Women Voters. Confusion about our identity as Unitarian Universalists is not limited to children. What's the difference between a Unitarian and a Universalist is a frequently asked question, not only by newcomers, but also by longtime members of this congregation. Garrison Keeler and many others poke good-natured fun at the Unitarians, as if the Universalists never existed. Just two nights ago in this meeting house at that magical evening of music dedicated to the memory and spirit of Pete Seeger, my friend Scott Alaric asked, what would folk music have been without the Unitarians? And I ask, what would the Unitarians have been without the Universalists? The 1961 merger of the Unitarian and Universalist denominations brought together two proud traditions from which descend our liturgy, theology, and religious life. Yet many of us are only vaguely aware of them. Both Unitarianism and Universalism originated in theological ideas as old as Jesus, but condemned as heretical by the Christian Church. Rejecting the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Unitarians insisted that God is one, indivisible. Therefore, Jesus, whatever his nature, could not be God. Universalists believed in universal salvation. Saints and sinners alike, redeemed by Christ's sacrifice, would all go to heaven, although they disagreed on how long it would take the sinners to get there. <laughs> Two centuries later, 21st century Christians like Carlton Pearson and Rob Bell would reach the same conclusion. When the seeds of these two movements took root in North America over 200 years ago, they grew in different soil. Generally, Unitarianism flourished among the affluent, educated classes of New England coastal cities and towns, while Universalism appealed to farmers, tradespeople, and laborers in the countryside. When we think of early Unitarianism, we recall names like William Ellery Channing, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Theodore Parker, Harvard men all. Universalist pioneers like John Murray, Caleb Rich, and Hosea Ballou were self-educated and relied more on the power of the spoken word than of the written. They endured not only denunciation by the Calvinists, but also the disdain of the upper social classes. Because the Universalist legacy is lesser known, I will lift it up this morning. Hardship nurtured universalism. Widowed and impoverished, excommunicated from the Methodist Church, John Murray swore he'd never preach again. In 1770, forsaking his native England, he set sail for America. But his ship ran aground on a New Jersey sandbar. On the shore, Murray encountered Thomas Potter, an illiterate farmer who had built a chapel for itinerant preachers. 
When Potter learned that Murray was a preacher, the farmer assured him that the wind would not shift to free his ship until Murray preached in his chapel. (laughs) The wind held, and Murray's sermon on universal grace was so warmly received that he resolved to resume his ministry, becoming the most celebrated preacher in universalist history. The tale of Potter's chapel endures as our only honest-to-gosh UU miracle. In 1805, Hosea Ballou published a treatise on atonement, the masterwork of universalist theology. Ballou argued that Jesus' life was not a sacrifice to appease God's anger, but a demonstration of God's infinite love. The consequence of atonement, Ballou declared, is the universal holiness and happiness of mankind. If we agree in love, There is no disagreement that can do us any injury, but if we do not, no other agreement can do us any good. Ballou's book inspired thousands of Christians depressed by the bleakness of Calvinism, which held that most human beings were predestined to burn in hell forever. But educated listeners mocked Ballou's preaching style and untutored pronunciation. Although Ballou and the great Unitarian Channing ministered in Boston during the same quarter century, being of different social classes, they never met. It's probably just as well. Ballou held Channing in high regard, but Channing denounced universalism as the most threatening moral evil in our part of the country. In the mid-19th century, Thomas Starr King, probably the first minister to be fellowshipped as both Unitarian and Universalist, quipped that Universalists believe that God is too good to damn them. Unitarians believe that they are too good to be damned by God. (laughs) Universalism grew rapidly in converts and influence. More zealous in their evangelism than Unitarians, Universalists on horseback crisscrossed the frontier preaching universal salvation. By the 1840s, Universalists claimed hundreds of thousands of followers, making it the fifth largest denomination in the country. To remedy their lack of formal education, Universalists founded two outstanding institutions, Tufts College and St. Lawrence University. Shout out to the Tufts students with us this morning. In 1863, the St. Lawrence Seminary graduated Olympia Brown, the first woman in America to receive full ordination by any denomination. By 1920, 88 women had been ordained to Universalist ministry. Unitarians could claim barely half that number. Universalists took the lead in the struggle against slavery. In 1790, just three years after slavery was written into the United States Constitution, the first Universalist Convention denounced it. We believe it to be inconsistent with the union of the human race, they declared, to hold any part of our fellow creatures in bondage. While some prominent Unitarians like Emerson, Parker, and a reluctant Channing spoke out against slavery, many more Unitarians remained silent, compromised by financial ties to the southern textile industry. When fugitive slave Thomas Sims was arrested in Boston, William Lloyd Garrison's liberator reported that the bells of the Congregational Methodist and Universalist churches in Waltham tolled in protest, adding sarcastically, 
The bell on the Unitarian Church, being clogged with cotton, would not sound. When the Civil War broke out, Clara Barton, a Universalist nurse from North Oxford, Massachusetts, became known as the Angel of the Battlefield and later founded the American Red Cross. After the war, Universalists led movements for temperance, prison reform, and public education. The first African-American Universalist minister, Joseph Jordan, was ordained in 1889. Not until 1912, a quarter century later, did Unitarians ordain their first African-American minister, Ethelred Brown. But by the end of the 19th century, Universalism was in decline, a victim of its own success. Calvinism had quietly surrendered. None of the mainline Protestant denominations spent much time frightening their congregations with hellfire and damnation. Meanwhile, Universalism had grown theologically more orthodox and socially more conservative. Migration to the cities had depopulated its rural base. While the Unitarians, under the driving leadership of Henry Bellows and Samuel Atkins Eliot, built enduring national institutions to unite and support their congregations, Universalism drifted on a receding tide. In the early 20th century, the gospel of justice and social reform preached by Clarence Russell Skinner revived Universalists' passions, but the denomination continued to struggle. By the 1920s, Universalists were talking merger, not only with the Unitarians, but also with the Congregationalists. Some Universalists thought the Unitarians insufficiently Christian or too humanistic, but a new general superintendent, Robert Cummins, realized that Universalists' only hope for survival was a new vision of their faith. Universalism, he proclaimed in 1943, cannot be limited either to Protestantism or to Christianity, not without denying its very name. Ours is a world fellowship, not just a Christian sect. For so long as Universalism is Universalism and not partialism, we must make it unmistakably clear that all are welcome, theist and humanist, Unitarian and Trinitarian, people of every color. A circumscribed universalism is unthinkable. So what had begun as a universally redemptive Christianity was now a universal religion. This reinvention paved the way for alliance with the increasingly eclectic and humanist Unitarians. Still, merger was not a foregone conclusion. Outnumbered by Unitarians nearly five to one, many Universalists feared being overwhelmed and forgotten. It didn't help when Unitarians were heard to joke that the name of the new denomination should combine the first two syllables of Universalist with the last three syllables of Unitarian. Differences of theology and class persisted. One Universalist complained that Unitarians seemed more interested in analyzing the nature of infinity than in the spirit of love. I feel that I ought to put on my company manners, this Universalist complained, when I go into a Unitarian church. But when the final plebiscite for merger was held in 1960, 79% of Universalist congregations and 91% of Unitarian voted yes. Here at First Parish in Cambridge, with the support of our minister, Ralph Halverson, who had been a delegate to the Consolidation Conference in Syracuse, 
The motion to merge the two movements passed by a 73 to 6 vote of the membership. Still, our Meeting House News displayed the name Unitarian alone for most of the coming decade. And even when it added the name Universalist one week, the very next issue might forgetfully omit it. Our congregational historian Gloria Korsman points out that by 1960, all of the historic Universalist congregations in Cambridge had already shut their doors. One of the old Universalist buildings in Central Square today houses a Greek Orthodox church. Had First Parish been faced with a proposal to merge with a local Universalist congregation, who knows what that outcome might have been. Some Universalists believe their worst fears of merger came true. Great Universalist seminaries at Tufts and St. Lawrence are closed now. Some complain that the Universalist faith in a loving God and a living Christ has become just another entree in the UU theological smorgasbord. But Universalism lives on in our first principle, which affirms the inherent worth and dignity of every person. It lives on in our dedication to liberation from the oppressions of race, gender, class, physical ability, sexual orientation, and gender identity and expression. It lives on in the resurgent, heart-centered spirituality of our congregations. It lives on whenever we reach out to neighbor or stranger with divine compassion. Love, unmitigated, uncompromising, unstoppable, remains the core of our community and our faith. When asked your religion, each of you will form your own answer. Maybe it's none of your business. Maybe it's all of the above. Maybe it's Unitarian, Universalist. Amen. Ashe. And blessed be.